Welcome to Podcast by Tech Nation. This is a series of podcasts focused specifically on the biomedical and HTM industry. Episodes are added monthly. Listening to each episode is eligible for one continuing education credit from the ACI. At the conclusion of this episode, you'll be able to access a link that will take you to a quick survey. Once you complete the survey, you'll be able to download your certificate. Before we begin today's podcast, I'd like to invite you to save the date for our upcoming MD Expo in Atlanta on April 11th through the 13th, 2022. You can find more details and registration for the show at mdexposhow.com. Podcast by Tech Nation would like to thank our sponsor, Provo Medical. Provo Medical is a diagnostic imaging equipment distributor that delivers high-quality, affordable imaging equipment and services to medical practices around the country. With Provo, you'll get a true partner who puts you first. For more information, please visit probomedical.com. In this episode, we are joined by Brian Gill, VP of Marketing, and Hobie Sears, Senior Territory Manager both of Provo Medical. Brian, you may begin whenever you are ready. Today on the Tech Nation podcast, we are going to be talking about things biomeds need to know about servicing ultrasound. I'm Brian Gill. I'm the VP of Marketing for Provo Medical. I've been in the ultrasound industry since 1999, and I've done everything from sales to service to marketing to web programming, and I'm best known for doing video reviews on different versions of ultrasound equipment. And I'm here with Hobie Sears. He's a territory manager for Provo Medical. And tell us about yourself. Well, good morning and or good day or good afternoon, whatever it be for you. Listening. Yeah. So I've been doing the ultrasound thing now since 1990. Started out with Accuson back in the day, as we like to say, and spent about 12 years there. Then moved into the independent or ISO ultrasound service world, really at a time when it was still in its infancy and have grown along with that over the years. A couple different reiterations there. I've been with Probo Medical over three years, and we just continue to provide uh, great service, parts, transducers, repair, and refurbished and new equipment. So as we move through today, you're going to learn a lot more about how to not only help yourself service ultrasound equipment, but also help us help you in such a way that you can actually make more of your time, better service your customers. And we're just going to help you out in that whole process of taking care of equipment. And by us and we, you're talking about in general service engineers, not necessarily Probo Medical, but how best to handle those situations to be ready, save time, save money for you, and a lot of frustration. So let's just jump right into that, Hobie. You know, you got a a list of things here that uh, can really take them ahead. So if you want to jump right into it. Sure. So really the first thing that we talk to organizations about, and, and I think most organizations are so much better at this than they were even five years ago, and certainly so much better than they were 10 years ago, is knowing your inventory. And that may sound real simplistic, but it's hard to take care of your fleet of ultrasound equipment if you don't really know what you have as a whole group or scale of things. And you know, you may not realize that you've got redundancies in a lot of areas that you can utilize to better service different departments. Of course, you have to get cooperation between those departments, and we all know that. <laughs> but you know, also just knowing what you have from a standpoint of being able to plan and whether that's for contracts or time and material service, or you just realize that you have 40 of a particular type of transducer. So you know what? It probably makes sense to have one available just in inventory at the hospital, because we're going to replace a few of those in a year, that kind of thing. 
So in some way, knowing your inventory is really step one in doing that due diligence and getting ready to service ultrasound on a full scale level. And that's surprisingly a bigger problem than most people know with inventory. You face that a lot, right? Where they're like, I don't know. <laughs> it's Yeah, it's true. And, you know, one of the things that I didn't mention, but we should talk about, and this isn't a problem today as much as it was in the past, but ultrasound transducer theft is a real thing. And if you don't have serial numbers of your transducers, you really can't prove much. Yeah. And it makes it much more hard to become accountable to that and figure out what's going on lately. Often when that happens, somebody trying to sell it, because when, when we get those calls, it sounds a little shady. You know, it's like, yeah, just, just I'm Bill and I've got a probe to sell. Nothing else. That's a little odd. Yeah. So it does raise red flags on our end. So, you know, if that happens, you can always just start Googling refurbished ultrasound and seeing if somebody's heard anything. So, okay. So moving on, number two. So next, if you're going to be servicing your equipment to any scale, and that is more than just going in and doing a cursory look and then calling us or somebody else in to really take care of the problem. Of course, it does come down to you have to know what you're servicing. We find sometimes that facilities will try to dive into ultrasound without really developing a training structure or, and we're going to talk about this a little bit later, a support structure, which is equally important. So you really want to be sure that you have some basic knowledge of ultrasound. You want to have some basic knowledge of that machine or the group of machines that you're going to work on, how they function, et cetera. And maybe that includes something formal, such as training. And, you know, another little plug here, we do training at Provo Medical. Um, but that is, it's just crucial. Without that, you're going to fumble a lot and you're not going to be as empowered to take care of that unit as you are in something that you've been trained on and that you really understand well. And ultrasound's kind of its own little niche, right? Everybody talks about how ultrasound is different. If you're, even if you're used to doing imaging, ultrasound still has a totally different look. And so knowing the equipment helps out in all of those processes, not only with being able to physically work on the unit, but also to interact in the ultrasound world, which we're going to talk about a little bit as well before we're all done today. Yeah. Going back to that training, not, not to plug us in general, but just that basic foundation, because I know you do a basic class, that basic yeah. foundation, just to not be afraid of the machine. For I think sure. that's number one is don't be afraid of it. They're mostly running on windows and things like that. So not that you can touch it, but it's hard to break it by getting to those Right. Yeah. They, they, yeah, they lock sure. you out from some cool stuff. So when I was learning, it was like, just start playing around. You have to work hard to really mess it up. Oh yeah. So kind of once we bridge the gap of training and inventory, so you know what you got, you know what knowledge you have, then we really start getting into the nuts and bolts of actually doing service and working on the equipment. And one of the things that we're going to, you know, touch base on, we kind of have preventive maintenance and then a subset of things that we need to do with inside that. And we're not going to cover all of those things in this podcast, because frankly, it would be a little boring. Um, <laughs> so most ultrasound systems that are not point of care anyway, need to be PM'd once a year. And people always, you know, preventive maintenance, it's, there's always like the sigh, right? Ugh, I've got to do, you know... X number of permanent maintenances per month. And we know folks in-house, you guys just get slammed with this kind of stuff. But we really, when we start to look at PMs on an ultrasound system, we want to we wanna think of it as more, it's not just a routine thing, right? This is time that we're going to spend with this ultrasound system and it's 
You know, it's an imaging device. It's different from X-ray or CT or MRI, obviously. And we don't radiate anything that's harmful, but yet we're still an imaging device. And there's care that has to be taken during the PM. So they do need to be taken seriously. But at the same point in time, we challenge our folks to not think of PMs as just something to get through. But, you know, PMs are practice time or a time to refresh your knowledge on a unit kind of just to be able to get to spend time with a unit. Maybe you have a unit in your hospital you don't have a lot of, and so PMs are about the only time you spend any real time with it. So even just taking it apart to clean it is actually practicing and getting to learn the machine again and refreshing your muscle memory, so to speak, with how the machine works and where the setup pages are, those kinds of things. So, you know, while there are things we have to accomplish during the PM, you know, things that are required by ECR and phantom imaging, and transducer leakage, which we're going to talk about that a little bit more in a couple minutes. Those things all have to happen. It's the mindset of going into this where we're doing this to mentally to refresh our memory, to get some new practice on the machine. That way, when it does break two weeks, six months, you know, you can go back and you've had that refresher of how to uh, get into this machine and take care of things. One of the things you'd mentioned to me before that I thought was fascinating was just the whole entire approach of this is now interesting because you know how to use the ultrasound. Sure. So to touch on that uh, a little bit because it's, it's, it's a neat kind of speech that you give on that. Right. So the more, the more you know about ultrasound, the more, um, the more you're going to take away from every time you touch the machine. And PMs are one of those times where we're with the machine longer during a PM than probably most average service calls. You know, a lot of PMs on ultrasound machines, it's going to take hour to an hour and a half, depending on the individual machine and how dirty it is and how much you clean and that kind of stuff. And we're not going to get into the whole, how much of a machine do you clean thing? Because some guys don't clean at all. And other guys make them look like they've been detailed by a professional <laughs> car detailer. And, and both are have reasons for doing that. But irregardless of all of that, the more you know about ultrasound, and we're going to get into increasing that knowledge before we're done today. But the more you know about ultrasound, the more that the PM will mean to you because you're going to gain more insight, knowledge about the system every time you're in front of one. Yeah. I tell a lot of our guys that when we first start training them or hospital engineers come to us for training, they go through our basic ultrasound class. We do phantom imaging in our basic ultrasound class. We also teach them to scan themselves a little bit. We'll touch on that again in a little bit later. But when they first start doing phantom imaging on a transducer, I tell them, it's going to take you 10 minutes to get these four images. And in two years, you're going to do that in about 60 seconds. That's how much knowledge you will gain in ultrasound over that time period. And that's what we're talking about is that familiarity, that knowledge, just knowing when you look at the image, you know it's right yeah. or you know it's not right. And those are the biggest gains you'll see. So I always tell everybody when you first start doing a PM, you need to plan on two hours. And in a year, you'll do them in an hour, hour and 15 minutes. And that's just the reality. You're more willing to dive into the PM. Can I ask a quick question? I don't know if you get to this later, but I've heard two different things about actually power. So when you go into the PM and you know the system's in there, I've heard they need a dedicated line for most ultrasounds, and I've heard also just plug it into the wall, make sure not a bunch of stuff is not, don't put it on a power strip with 15 other things like that, obviously. 
do they need a dedicated line? You know, it's an interesting question. Do they need a dedicated line? You know, if you look at most manufacturer service manuals, yep, they're all going to say that, right? And and why? It's because that manufacturer doesn't want to have to deal with any issue that could possibly arise from it not being a dedicated line. In reality, do most hospitals use dedicated lines? I would be surprised if they do, Okay. Uh, to be completely honest. And do we get problems from that? On a rare occasion, yes, where we will get some, what we commonly refer to as RFI. It is not RFI, but it's actually like a ground loop noise that's coming in through the power system, just through the electrical line. And you'll find out lamp in the room next door that is plugged in and it's causing interference on your system. And I've seen things like that over the years, many times. Problems that can be relatively hard to diagnose too, but that's that's a story for another day to go through that. Yeah. So yeah, what I had always heard, and I'm using air quotes and saying starving power, it causes problems in the machines. And uh, there's a lot of people who swear by that. So not to, not to beat a dead horse, but it's kind of a big deal on both sides. Is there such thing as starving power and it'll overeat the machine and those kinds of things? I think there used to be. I okay. think machines used to pull a lot more current than they do today, you know? So when you're back in the back in the day, 128 XP, and the machine weighed 600 pounds and had five power supplies and was probably drawing, you know, 11 amps consistently while it was running. Yeah, we had to be, you had to be more careful, right? You couldn't run a vacuum in the same room yeah. with that machine. Yeah. Um, and today, honestly, there's no exaggeration in what he just said. They really were, how many circuit boards? Six, over 60 circuit boards. And it was 600 pounds. Oh, yeah, for sure. It's a monster. It's a monster. And, and all manufacturers had machines like that. Yeah. But today, you know, the highest end machines are pulling six amps, seven amps. So it's, it's really not as much power. So we don't see that concern to the same degree. You know, 20 years ago, lots of facilities had UPSs that they were plugging their machines into. Now... I can't even remember the last time I've recommended a UPS, and I've actually recommended more be removed yeah. than I've told people to install in the last five years because the UPS was actually causing problems, not solving problems. I do remember that. Uh, those who know Steve Plummer out there, he, he would go pull them out, say stop, because yeah. your battery's dead and it's killing you. So, okay. Yep. All right. That was more of a personal question, and hopefully that helps people. So uh, what's next? Um, so really, this is a subset of the PM little thing we talked about a minute ago. And it, although not specific to PMs, but certainly during every PM, you want to be sure that you are creating what we commonly refer to as a preset disk. So you need to, and we're not going to go through, you know, steps one through 12 on six different machines while we're sitting here today, guys, because that would be incredibly boring. But once you have the understanding of how to create a preset disk for whatever machine you're working on, that really should be done on every PM or when you're onboarding that unit or even had significant changes done to the unit. The reason is, is that's one of those things that if the unit software crashes or it loses a hard drive, even if that's not something you're going to do, maybe you're going to call in the manufacturer, maybe you're going to call in Probo Medical, maybe you're going to call in somebody else, I, I don't know. But we need that preset disk. That preset disk is crucial to getting you back up and running. And on some units out there without it, well, we can load software, but that's it. Your machine's going to turn on, it's going to boot up, but it's not going to have options. It's not going to have any of the settings. And it takes considerable work to reprogram an ultrasound machine today. You know, 20 years ago, 
oh, we probably had 500 settings on an ultrasound machine. Today, cardiac ultrasound machine might have 10,000. Yeah. Let me follow up on that. When you say user presets or presets, there's a lot of different types of presets, sure. especially GE. I might go in one and there's 10 different types of backups and they can be confusing. You know, yep. those are over-engineered with those things. Are you talking about, hey, just select all and put that on a disk or is like, hey, really just the big ones are the applications and system settings? So, and again, it's going to vary a little bit based on system type and even manufacturer type, how we divide that up. If you've had training on machines or even somebody show you this, you know which ones you need to make, mm -hmm. make them. It's usually not the knowledge that holds people up. It's usually they forget to make them or they just haven't made them. So I'm more concerned that they just get made than being sure that we're getting all of them. But get as many as you can. And that does vary per machine. So, you know, if we're talking about a Philips Epic, you know, you just tell it to make a backup and it does everything for you, that kind of thing. And one thing I didn't mention before though, you do want to be sure that those presets include the system options. So one notation is on GE units, you actually, not only making the presets is important, but getting a picture or writing down the actual option strings. Because on some of their units, you need to enter those strings during the software load more on the vivid side. And if you don't have them physically, you're stuck. Yeah. And if you've already loaded software to your hard drive, now you can't see them. And you, you're now you're stuck. And now you're going to have to call GE. It may take them days to deliver those presets to you. In the meantime, your system is down. And there's nothing a service engineer can do for that. It Besides calling GE and waiting as well. Yeah. Yeah. Correct. So you'll be down major downtime. Yeah. So that that's a pretty key one right there. Yeah. So, um, so backups and presets, including options. We actually consider that the single most important piece of information that you need from every ultrasound system. The next thing would be software level and like any hardware cart level that may apply. We need to pause for a minute. That's the 11 o'clock tornado siren. <laughs> I hear this woo. It's like well, it hurts. It, on the podcast. It, yeah, people be like, what is that? There's sirens going on, a tornado coming through. It's 11 a.m. on a Friday, so that's what happens here. So let's just go to the next intro. Is it recording? Yeah. Okay. All right, go ahead. All right, we're going to talk about transducers. So obviously, ultrasound transducers are super important to the modality of ultrasound. A, it is the um, most likely thing to break on an ultrasound machine. Across the board, across all ultrasound systems, levels, manufacturers, doesn't matter. The ultrasound transducer is the most likely thing to fail and or be broken. So we do more probes than we do parts or service calls. And doesn't matter what manufacturer it is. So all that being said, you know, we definitely want to understand transducer care. So kind of hearkening back to the preventive maintenance and what you do with the transducer at that. So first we are going to inspect the transducer end to end. We are looking for any cut, hole, tear, nick, out of the lens anyway we don't really worry about a nick out of the plastic but we do worry about the plastic being cracked on a transducer um especially uh, on the nose piece of the scan head so you're really looking for anything like that acr american college of radiology specifically states that no transducer can have any hole tear cut in the in the cable or the transducer or the lens of any kind and once those things occur that transducer should be pulled from service and then sit for replacement or repair. 
and, and that kind of thing. So paying special notice to the lens itself and looking at it that there's no holes or, you know, dents in the lens, that kind of thing. And also the plastics around that. One of the things that uh, you should be doing during the PM with a transducer is electrical safety testing. So much like you would test the machine, and all of you guys are very familiar with how to do that, you're also going to test the transducer. And so when doing that, um, it's going to find a thing like a hole in the lens or in the casing of the transducer. And most transducers have what's called a glue line. And just to kind of help everybody understand that at some point on the head of the transducer, you're going to see like a seam or a line that goes around the transducer tip. And for the most part, you don't want to submerge the transducer in water for testing deeper than that. It wasn't designed for that and it could be past the glue line. And if there's glue missing, you could actually inject water into the probe. Now, if there's a crack at that level, if there's a crack, it needs fixed anyway. Odds are, if there's a crack, it's also going to fail leakage. If there's a hole in the lens, it's going to fail leakage and it's going to be at a level that you you know something's wrong. Yeah, and that, that's generally like a quarter to one inch down. I mean, every probe is different. A sector is going to be different than a linear. That glue line usually goes down quarter to an inch. I'd probably say most of them are in the half inch to three quarter inch yeah. range kind of okay. thing. Yeah. Cool. Cool. Um, except for like an individual, which, you know, that'll be, that'll be a great distance because it was designed to be yeah. watertight, maybe not all the way to the cable, but right. quite a way. Yes. Okay. Let's talk also about, you know, these problems that we see on the cables and that kind of stuff where maybe the, the sheathing gets torn. And, and we've seen folks tape them up with electrical tape or duct tape or that kind of thing, thinking that they're doing something that's going to prevent the problem from getting worse. Rarely are people doing it, especially these days, thinking, oh, I've just fixed the problem. Our advice is please don't tape it at all. The tape um, residue either makes the repair much more difficult or in some cases causes the new vinyls that we need to put on to not stick. So you could potentially cause a probe to become unrepairable by using tape. I can't say that that happens a lot, but it all is always a potential. So really there's no advantage in taping it. It's not considered an acceptable fix by ACR or other accreditation societies. So you're not really helping yourself. You're really just better off to pull it from service and get it fixed. I can't imagine a patient feels real confident when there's duct tape or electrical tape on that probe. Yeah. Well, you yeah. know, then there's that part of it. Yeah. So, sure. So, well, you touched on repair a little bit. That's something that's grown. Obviously we do it here and there's other companies that do it. That field has grown a lot. And I'm not sure if everybody understands the power of that, but earlier you talked about get that repair done quickly and you're going to save yourself thousands uh, of dollars. And that's why it's so popular. But you want to talk about that, that repair. Right. Kind of so, yeah. So I like to use a phrase, repair fast, repair small. And that means repair as soon as the problem happens, let's not wait for it to get bigger. So repair small and, you know, and then repair fast. The sooner you do it, odds are the better the repair is going to be, the better that there's a chance that it can be repaired. Uh, a good point of interest in this is with a bad strain relief. When the strain relief of a probe fails, well, the strain relief is there for a reason. It's to protect the cable. And if you keep using a probe with a bad strain relief, you are going to break the cable. Well, that just went from something very cheap to something very expensive or potentially something not repairable. So that's what we mean by repair fast. We don't want to continue to use those things. So whatever vendor you may use, uh, you know, be it us or somebody else, we, you know, see if they have a loaner, see if they, you know, how fast they can turn it around for you, but repair fast, repair small. And typically it's 
much better chance of success and much cheaper. Yeah. I want to go back to the running over the cable part. You'll walk in and, and you see, and I'm sure you've seen this a thousand times, is you, you see the cable and there's tire marks all over it. Clearly the thing's been run over quite a few times and nobody's said anything. How serious of a problem is that? Since it's not a cut, it's not a hole, it's not anything. It's just, uh, it's, it's kind of a roadkill thing. <laughs> so it's, uh, how serious is that in general? Like what, when you see that, is, is it a panic or is it a, yeah, we're good. Yeah. So I have, it's, it's neither, it's neither a panic or we're good. Usually it's probably somewhere in the middle. So certainly manufacturers have designed a, a little bit and let's caution around those words, a little bit of resilience in these probes, but let's think about the cable as, as what it is. So this cable is not a single cable that's transmitting all this information. The cable is a bundle of many small coaxial cables. And so if we go back and think about our engineering, a coaxial cable, the signal actually does not run on the wire. It runs between the inner and outer sheathing of the coaxial cable. And, and so it runs in the space of that coaxial cable, which means if the cable becomes unrounded, it affects the quality of the signal that's being passed. So when you roll over a cable and you flatten it even a little bit, it could affect the quality. The question is, is it enough to affect the quality? And so that we would need, you know, to scan with and phantom imaging, scanning yourself, those kinds of things. So certainly a time or two, hey, let's just face it, it happens. Cable management is a nightmare for sonographers. But when it becomes repetitive, and I mean, sometimes you can even feel the cable and you'll feel one part of the cable and it feels robust and you could feel where the, where it's been rolled over and you could feel that it's flat or it feels smushy because the, all the little wires, they've just lost their, their resilience. And if you can feel that probably something is significantly wrong with the transducer at that time. So and that would reflect in the image and drop out or generally you know, yeah. dark areas, weak signals. Those yeah. And it, it, that's the kind of thing where you can just get a transducer that doesn't look good. And there's not like a dropout or there's not a specific thing. It's just, it just doesn't look as good as my others. Got it. So you talk about a bunch of little wires in that little quarter inch cable. On average, how many do you see? It could be from 64 to what, 256 of those little Yeah. Wires. These days, probably most are running in the 128 range just generally. But, you know, most transducers today are, are 92 real elements to, um, you know, 128, 256. I, I think most that have those larger elements, even right there, they're multiplexing immediately. So they still have cable bundles of like 128, that kind of thing. But no matter what, you're, let's just say, give or take a hundred small little coaxial cables in that transducer cable. It's a lot. It's a lot. And, you know, if you ever have a transducer that is just trash, cut the cable off and open it up. Yeah. It's interesting. You know, you'll be amazed with what's in there. We do that for talks we do. And the cables have kind of become the star of the show. I think it's the most underappreciated piece of the transducer. Great. All right. So next we are going to move on to some topics that are not particularly about directly fixing the machine. It's making yourself better around fixing ultrasound and just around ultrasound in general. And some of this applies to anything you would work on. So the next thing we're gonna talk about is a support structure. So if you are a company that is building a service division, one of the things that you're gonna do is you're going to build 
a not only a, a field force, but you're going to build a support structure for that force, you know, tech support, those kinds of things. And we would say this even translates down to the individual hospital engineer biomed or the, the one-man show out doing ultrasound service. We all have somebody we call when we need an answer about something, or we have various people we call based on maybe what product it is. And this is something that you need to have within a hospital as well as you need a support structure. You need somebody to call to ask questions. And, and that's really important. I have that, you know, I've been doing this 30 years. I know quite a few things, but I'm never going to sit here and say, I know it all. And so I have guys that I call and, and that happens every day. We're always talking to each other within Provo. We, we have a, a large field force and uh, very experienced. So we kind of supply a lot of our own tech support, but we also have a tech support group within our Tampa facility that we can call and talk to. So we have that support structure and, and really that is something that you should develop as well. And uh, you probably do probably don't phrase it in such a way, but it's just one of those things. That as you start working on different ultrasound types, maybe the person used for your support structure before doesn't work on that. And so you need to find somebody else that is that expert. So building your support structure is important. What's the best way to find those people? Trade shows, biomed shows, just calling around? Yes. Calling around. No, it's all of it. All of the above. Yeah, gotcha. it's all of it. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, eh, that plays, that kind of rolls really well into this next thing we're going to talk about. It, it. It plays into being active in the modality, right? So, and in, and in this case, the modality is a little twofold. That's active as a biomed. It's also active in the world of ultrasound, right? And one of the things that we talk about is, can you fix the problem, not just fix the unit? So we talk about that kind of stuff a lot where I'm interested in, in fixing the sonographer's problem. And that would include fixing the unit, but sometimes that's not all that we're doing. It's, it's something else, but we don't know that unless we know the modality of ultrasound. So we think if you're going to be probably like the ultrasound guy in your hospital, or maybe there's, maybe your facility is really large. I know some facilities down in Texas and they literally have teams of guys that all they do is ultrasound and they, it's like their own company and they're four or five guys. and they're ultrasound only engineers and they run around and uh, knowing one or two of those guys that are in those groups, I know they know the modality of ultrasound. It's, it's more than just fixing it. And those kinds of things also end up earning trust with the sonographers they're working with. And we'll talk about that in a couple of minutes. So how do you, how do you go about understanding the modality of ultrasound or knowing the modality. Really, what we tell folks that come to our basic ultrasound class is, you know, when you go back to your hospital, one of the first things you need to do is go to the ultrasound department, find somebody who you get along with or you have a good relationship with and say, hey, can, can I come here for one hour a week for the next month? And you can, you know, Help me learn how to scan myself. Help me learn how to scan my carotid. Teach me how the ultrasound machine works and ways the sonographer wants to use it. Not to, not to learn to do ultrasound, but to learn more about how they're doing things, to, to grasp that holistic view of the modality. 
And that's, that's the key to start you know, participating in the modality instead of just fixing the system. And, and there is a different level there. When you do that, it's going to give you a better appreciation for the modality as a whole. And you will naturally start doing more things that will improve your skills fixing the unit, which is where we want to go. Yeah. So you said you can fix the machine, but not fix the problem. Sure. Which is really deep. Hobie, I appreciate that. Well, we, <laughs> that's a, fair. But you talked about things like stress echo and understanding, you know, not just like when they say something goes down to when you understand you can fix the problem because things like stress echo take a lot more processor power, but there's more to it than that as far as the study. And I, I think you give a great example of, of that and why it's so important to understand. Right. Yeah. No, thank you. That's the stress echo example is really probably the perfect example of understanding what that means and why it matters maybe more than some other things. So let's, let's say you get a call from a sonographer and she said, Hey, the ultrasound system locked up while we were doing a stress echo. And you know, your initial reaction might be, we'll reboot it and use it. And, and, and that might, from a technical engineering perspective, that makes good sense. From an ultrasound perspective, that's really scary for the sonographer. And let's talk about why. So maybe you know what a stress echo is and maybe you don't, but we're gonna, I'm gonna explain it a little bit. So a stress echo is a procedure that's done in cardiology to, to stress the heart and to see how the heart performs. But how do we stress the heart? So we stress the heart by making it beat really fast. So if you're somebody that's capable and of the right age and you're able to do it, they're gonna run you on a treadmill. And sometimes, I mean, sometimes you're running on the treadmill for 20 minutes. I mean, you have to get an accelerated heart rate. I think it's based on your age and your weight and everything else. And there's a number you have to hit. And, and not only do you have to hit that number, that level has to stay up there for a little while. Like once you stop, your heart needs to continue at that rate. So, so it's not an easy task to get somebody at that level in order to do a stress echo. If you're unable to do that, they're going to do it with pharmaceuticals. So if you're, you know, 75, 80 years old and you're getting a stress echo, they're still going to get your heart up to 140 or whatever it is, uh, beats per minute. And it's exhausting and it's being done with pharmaceuticals, and I, I couldn't tell you if there's a greater or lesser risk there, I don't know. But either way, when they get your heart rate up to there and say you're on a uh, treadmill, so that individual has to, and they are coached through this the whole time, that individual has to come off the treadmill, get onto the bed so they can do their echo, and the sonographer has two minutes to gather all the information that they need. And once they get past two minutes, the heart rate will be low enough to where it doesn't fit into the the need of the test. So if the machine locks up during that two minutes, you can see how that's a bigger problem than it might be on just an average day when it's just a lockup and why that gets a little bit more of attention and how, you know, a sonographer is not going to be really interested in wanting to use that machine again for a stress echo until it gets checked or something happens, or maybe a reason can be found out that makes sense. So that's one of those things when we talk about understanding the modality that it gives us a better reasoning for maybe why the sonographer, when they called you, was a little bit more excitable this time than last time, or, you know, maybe a little bit more frustrated, that kind of thing. Awesome. So let's segue from that and just actually talk about sonographers for a minute. So full disclosure, I am married to a sonographer. So ultrasound is really bred into our, you know, into the fabric of 
our lives. I mean, this is all I've ever done. Two weeks before I graduated from college, I had my first job with Accuson and yep, still doing it, you know, several companies later, but this is all we've done. So, so ultrasound really is very much so completely bred into, you know, kind of who I am as a person. But when it comes to sonographers, we do think that there is a lot of uh, misconceptions out there about, you know, kind of the job they do. And we hear quite often that sonographers can be picky, uh, that kind of thing. And, and I think everybody in imaging, you know, imaging techs in general, you know, rightfully so they're picky is because they want every case to be the best thing they can deliver for their patients. Uh, and, you know, sonographers really do care about the work they do. And one of the things I'm going to talk about now is there's a relationship that occurs in ultrasound that doesn't occur in any other imaging modality. This is the sonographer machine patient relationship. So when a patient is going for a CT or an MRI or even an X-ray, those technicians will prep the patient, they'll get them in position, and then they walk away from them. And they have the machine shoot the film. Even X-ray, you know, they're only around the corner, but they still go over and they push a button and the machine shoots the film. And so the machine took the X-ray. Now, the, the tech had to put, they had to get the patient in the right spot. I'm not taking anything away from them at all. In ultrasound, it's not that way. In ultrasound, it's different. The sonographer is the conduit of the imaging for the machine. So this is the only time where the, the, the person doing the ultrasound, the sonographer is touching the patient and the machine and the studies occurring during that time period. So there is a difference and therefore they're spending much more time with the patient just in general, and it is them, they're the conduit. And when they move that transducer, you know, a centimeter, they get a totally different view of the body. Or if they change the angle by two degrees, it's a totally different view of the body. And it's so easy for them to not see something as well as it is. They're so good to see things that nobody else is going to see. So there, that connection between the sonographer, patient, and machine, what it actually does is it creates a stronger connection between the sonographer and the machine. And I think that's why we see some of the passion that we do out of sonographers when things, when they just know something's not right. And maybe they can't even describe it, but they know it's not right. It's our job as engineers to tease that out of them, to work with them, to make them feel comfortable about talking about that. So that's a little bit about the mind of the sonographer. Another little tidbit here, if you're working with ultrasound, you can use the phrase ultrasound tech and most sonographers, they're, they're fine with that. They're not gonna complain. They're not gonna see it as a negative, but their, their actual titles are sonographers. They are registered sonographers. And that's, it's kind of a title of honor, so to speak. If you say the word sonographer as opposed to ultrasound tech, they're all going to hear that. They may not even react to it, but. They've reacted to it, believe me. The um, tip of the hat. Yeah. Uh, pay respect. Absolutely. Yeah. All right, cool. I've got a couple more questions before we wrap up. Now, the, a couple of years ago, the whole Windows 10 thing became really important because of cybersecurity. And we were getting calls like suddenly, you know, I need a Windows 10 machine. And we found that it was very difficult to find out which machines were Windows 10, digging through data sheets and all that stuff. Surely this, these biomeds are working in a lot of hospitals. Is Windows 10 a big thing? And how do they find out if their machines are actually running on Windows 10? It's just not obvious. Sure. Yeah. So is Windows 10 a big thing? 
and our answer would be, it depends on what facility you're in. Facilities make those rules and usually not even at the biomed level to be IT and with zero accountability to what happens in imaging, but imaging gets stuck by following their rules. And so we say where it's a big deal, it's a really big deal. Some hospitals just say, yep, everything's got to be Windows 10. And that's the beginning and end of it. And it's just a rule. So you're stuck. Other facilities will say, well, everything we're going to bring in going forward will be Windows 10, but we're going to let the legacy products remain and we'll phase them out, you know, as soon as we can. So, and, and we see a complete mixture of both out in the world for sure. So it, it, it's a big deal if the facility makes it a big deal. That's the best way I can say that. In regards to how do you find out, that's actually the harder part. It, it really does come down most of the time to looking at spec sheets getting information from manufacturers. On most machines, it's it can be difficult to tease out of the machine itself what platform it's built on. You know, you can look for little clues on some machines, like if they have a, during the boot process, a, a circle comes up that's spinning, you, you know that's the Windows 7 circle. But that that's few and far between that show you things like that. Yeah, and, and one of the questions was, can I just put Windows 10 on the ultrasound? And it's a hard no. Yeah, hard no. <laughs> yep, we can't just change operating systems. Uh, a, it just would never work. And B, it probably violates ridiculous FDA violation. Okay, I got a, it's more of a fun question. 30 years you've been in this and you walk into some crazy situations. You have a craziest situation, worst situation. Yeah, craziest or I guess craziest situation that an ultrasound machine survived is in a machine hit by, I think it was a class four tornado. It was a significant tornado. <laughs> this is back again, back in the nineties. And, and, and again, ultrasound machines then were built like complete tanks. I mean, they, they could just take any amount of abuse. And obviously because uh, this was an Accusom 128 XP hit pretty much head on, but again, they weighed 600 pounds, so it didn't move. Um, and, but it, all we did was open that machine up and we let it dry for three days and put it back together. And that machine continued to run for several years. So, you know, that, that was one of the crazier things, you know, we've all seen them get knocked over and, you know, that kind of stuff. And I'm not sure that, uh, brand new ultrasound system built by any manufacturer today would survive a tornado. I just, you know, they're just not made like that anymore. We don't make them like we used to. Um, that's for sure. Got it. Okay. Oh, I forgot. Sorry. The worst is it's always flooding. So when machines get hit, you know, somehow ultrasound departments seem to always be under some sort of plumbing and pipe breaks and water. And it's always like right over the machine, water right on the machine. Um, but the worst is, and it has happened once or twice when it's a sewage line <laughs> and, oh, it's, it's bad. The worst case, the one was, again, it was back in the nineties. And at that point in time, even the amount of cleaning and the companies you had to send that it was still cheaper to replace the machine than to have it cleaned to the level it was going to need to be cleaned. That one got hit hard. I mean, it was, like, <laughs> it was great visual. Like. Many gallons of water, like in the, the tens of gallons of water were dumped on that. It wasn't water. Uh, so <laughs> when you open that door, what'd you do? So, oh, I didn't even go. I just got the phone call <laughs> and made another phone call. Was told, no, we, you know, the company I worked for at that time. No, we don't fix that. So, no, that's awful. Uh, so speaking of dirty machines, just kind of got through the major parts of COVID. You know, one of the things you often see, well, People are not always clean on the machines and then you'd go into the situations and the machines would be covered in gel. You know, they just don't clean anything. How have things changed uh, sure. for you there? So everybody is cleaning way better 
and we get unintended consequences. So it's good that everybody's clean better than they were, and we don't have a lot of dried gel on machines or that kind of thing anymore. But now, because of COVID and, you know, pretty much we're disinfecting the entire machine between every patient, it means we're using a lot more wipes, chemical wipes on the machines, and particularly on the user interfaces and on the touch panels, and even on the monitors to some degree. And uh, what's happening is the these machines just can't handle the amount of chemical and the amount of control panels and touch panels that we are replacing. I don't have an exact number, but I would imagine if we looked at like a year over year result now compared to pre COVID, we're up three, 400% in the number of control panels we replace. It is significant. On an average month between me and the gentleman I work closest with in the field, we probably used to replace one control panel a month in, in the area we work in. Uh, we probably do one to two a week. It's amazing. Now. So how do they prevent something like that? I mean, do you know specific chemicals that they're using or? You know, I, I don't really know that it's just the abundance of it. And I'm not really sure that there is a way to prevent it. The one thing that we tell people to do that we at least think helps the touch panels. We don't know about the actual buttons because it, it's really once the chemical gets kind of down inside the button that creates the problem. And you can't do anything about that. But on the touch panels, particularly when they wipe down the touch panel, we are telling people to, once it's dry, because once it's dry, that product has done its job. It's, it's done. We're actually telling people to take a damp cloth and, and get rid of the residue. First of all, it's a lot of residue. And you don't even really need it. You don't want it on your gloves. You don't want to be carrying that residue around with you. So it doesn't make sense. So let's just get rid of it. And we just feel like it, it has to be better. You know, technically touch panels and monitors are only supposed to be cleaned with glass cleaner and water. Oh. Never, ever anything else. All manufacturers say that. They all agree on that. So you're really not supposed to clean these things with these high, you know, strong chemicals. They don't recommend sterilizing a touch screen. No, matter of fact, most service manuals will say touch screens and monitors are to be cleaned with glass cleaner and water. Now, oh. they know full well, everybody is going to do that, right? right? But that's the rule. So they don't have to build a touch panel that can withstand 4,000 different chemicals. Well, that, that almost seems like it would contradict protocols in a hospital. Well, it does. Yeah. The manufacturers covered themselves <sighs> at the same point in time. How nice. So how convenient. Yeah. And we and, and really there's no manufacturer that's that escapes this. Cool. That's all the questions I have. I did you have anything else you wanted to add here? No, I'm totally at a loss. <laughs> okay. I, I think we, you know, hit it all pretty well. Yeah, I think this is great. There's a reason I asked you to be here. I, you know, since we've started working together, my respect for you is extremely high. I hope he's the one here everybody likes to call. He's very anal retentive about being right, being exact, getting things right the first time, every time. So, and I'm not just being nice. It's, it's I, the relationship that we've had has been a lot of fun. And we talk about like crazy fantasy audio books and <laughs> the weird nerdy things that we do. So it's been a lot of fun and thank you for coming out. Uh, this is uh, Brian Gill and that's Hobie Sears with Probo Medical. Thank, thank you. you for listening. Thank you for listening to the Probo Medical podcast with Brian Gill and Hobie Sears. 
If you're interested in learning more about our services, you can go to www.probomedical.com and either call us or fill out a form and we will reach out to you. We do really pride ourselves in being a great partner for biomedical engineers. We have comprehensive offerings in ultrasound that includes parts, probes, probe repair, system sales. We do rent systems and probes like any type of system. And of course, just general repair. And one cool thing about our parts is that we actually do have them in stock. Not everybody does out there. We've torn down hundreds of ultrasound systems and put them in boxes and placed them on shelves. And they're ready to ship by 5 p.m. Eastern Standard Time of the day of your order. If you'd like to learn more about how to service your equipment, we recommend our service training courses that are hosted by, of course, Hobie Sears, who you just met, and or other senior engineers on our service team. Each course is three days long in our beautiful Tampa facility. And the first day is a basic ultrasound course that gives you an overview, and that is not required by everybody. And the second and third days are hands-on training on specific ultrasound systems. We host about one per month and try to keep our class sizes limited to have better education for the biomeds and engineers who attend. If you'd like to learn more, go to our website, www.probomedical.com. Thank you, Hobie, for a great presentation. If you enjoyed today's episode, you might also enjoy our webinar series, Webinar Wednesday. You can find a calendar of upcoming live webinars as well as an archive of on-demand webinars at webinarwednesday.live. To obtain your certificate for one CE credit from the ACI, please remember to click the link located below this podcast title to complete today's survey. If you have any questions, you can contact us at webinar at mdpublishing.com.